Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about the mortgage M&A landscape and possible federal regulations that might deal even more pain to the housing industry. We may have just gotten back from Gathering of Eagles, but we're not done with events for 2023 yet. This October, we're headed right back to Austin, Texas for Housing Wire Annual, and we want to see you there. We've got a power-packed agenda with content such as our Women of Influence speakers, peak performer playbooks, CEO playbooks, and more to propel your company forward, as well as a bunch of networking events. Because this event is open to real estate executives, mortgage title, and everyone in between, you really have the opportunity to network with people from all across the housing ecosystem. If you want to learn more about the event, or if you're already ready to get registered, head over to housingwire.com on the events tab and you can learn all about it. Not to mention, if you're an HW Plus member, you're going to get 50% off your ticket. So get registered for HW Plus and get registered for the event so we can see you out in Austin. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back, Sarah. Great to be back with you. I would like to start out with one of the features that uh, we published this week that was so good. It was by Bill Conroy. And uh, tell us what that's about. Yeah, so the lead image, I hope people will appreciate, maybe some won't, is a frog in a boiling pot of water. And I think it's really appropriate given the story. This is about some of the stresses, some of the pressures, some of the challenges in the independent mortgage bank uh, industry and really sort of that, that stage that they find themselves in right now. And so we wanted to take a closer look at the M&A activity, mergers, acquisitions, and, and really also look at a timeline, talk to the experts, the people who do this kind of work every day, and get a better sense of, okay, one, how bad is it? Two, how many deals are expected to be struck in terms of mergers and acquisitions? And then who survives? And what kind of timeline are we looking like? And then how big is the opportunity for those who do, in fact, survive? And so that was really the thesis uh, of, of this feature story that we published yesterday. And I want to start by maybe laying the groundwork here. So hopefully everybody still has good memories of what I call the unicorn years of 2020 and 2021. And you may recall there were a couple uh, M&A deals at the time, Stratmore, group, which, uh, you know, they're an advisory firm. They do a lot of tracking on M&A activity in the IMB industry. They found that there were 43 M&A deals involving IMBs with an annual origination volume of about $500,000 or more during 2020 and 2021. So last year, just 2022, that figure alone hit about 50 deals. And Stratmore is projecting for 2023, there will be at least 60 M&A deals. So 2022, 2023, we're looking at about 110, if my math is correct, right? And 
so, so Bill Conroy, our senior mortgage reporter, he spoke to Garth Graham. He's the senior partner at Stratmore, and he oversees all of the mortgage lender M&A activities. And he says, look, we have a pipeline right now of companies that have signed letters of intent, but they have not yet closed. And it's significant. It's the highest that has been in years. And if the market does stay as it is, there's going to be a lot more shakeout coming. And and one of the things I thought was really interesting about the conversation that Bill Conroy had with Garth Graham is, is that Graham said Stratmore has a lot of clients and, and a lot of their peers have a lot of clients and they're all doing the same thing, which is they are advising them not to announce when there is an asset deal because the publicity doesn't benefit either of those companies. Who does it benefit? Me, right? Reporter, editor, uh, newsman. And then it also benefits the, the Garth Grams of the world, the Stratmores, right? Because they get credit for uh, advising and, and making sure that the deal goes through. But the actual companies that are, are merging or, or you know acquiring one another, they don't really benefit from this. And so there are a lot of deals that are probably happening right now that are just not going to get publicized. you know. And, and we can track publicly traded companies but public records are really scant for private firms that go through an M&A deal. So when when Garth talks about 110 deals, that could be a fraction of the total number uh, because there, as you know, are not a lot of publicly traded mortgage companies out there. We've got REITs, of course. We've got some of the big IMBs out there. Uh, but for the most part, these are private shops, right? And, uh, and so th- these are also not the only... <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it an M&A deal necessarily, but there are shutdown engagements that Graham said they've they've noticed an uptick in this year. There were none in 2020, and these are pretty complicated deals. And there's a lot of risk in a lot of these deals. And as we've talked about in the past, are like you can't just shut down. You can't just say, okay, you know, you turn your sign on uh, on the storefront from open to close, and then you go on with your day, right? Like you have all sorts of loans, you have all kinds of personnel issues, you have uh, you know debtors, you have it's it's quite a process to do that. And, and so most of the time, according to Graham, when a shutdown is being pursued, it's because the lender's executives just waited too long to find a buyer and they just run out of cash. You know, these aren't like, you know, specific moments in time where something goes wrong. This is kind of the, you know, as the story says, the, the frog in, in the pot. So, uh, so that's one really interesting part of it. And, and I thought we could also talk a little bit more about some of the reasons why this is happening and then get into when some of the conditions are, are measurably likely to improve for the IMBs. Um, and so, you know, just starting there, I, I guess the best question is, okay, so why is this happening? And it's a lot of stuff that we've talked about in the past. The big one, uh, according to the sources that that Bill Conroy spoke to, is the rapid pace of these loan repurchase demands coming from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They made it really difficult for these struggling lenders to remain in compliance with both the GSE, but also the warehouse covenants. And so those covenants require that the lender has, it's typically like a minimum net worth or income. And if it's breached, those agreements can be canceled, right? And so if you're an IMB and you're cut off by the GSEs for violating, uh, say, the net worth covenant, yes, you could sell those loans to loan aggregators. But if there is a covenant violation, the warehouse lenders are probably also going to jump in and they're going to be pretty suspicious. 
So uh, Bill spoke to Brett Ludden. He's the managing director at Sterling Point Advisors, similar to, to what Garth uh, and the folks at Stratmore do. And he told Conroy that warehouse line providers, they're going to look at that and say, okay, hold on, wait a second. If you're getting cut off by Fannie, I'm going to assume that Fannie knows something that I don't. And then it really starts to go south from there. And obviously, you can't fund new loans if your warehouse lender cuts you off, right? So it becomes sort of that vicious cycle. And and at that point, you know, just a lot of them can't recover, especially when you're on the smaller midsize kind of, you know, zone. If you're a Loan Depot, a Guaranteed Rate, a UWM, a Rocket, you can absolutely weather some of those issues. But let's say you're a lender that's pretty small and you have to repurchase the loan. So you either sell it at a fat loss in the scratch and dent market, or you hold on to it. And, and the hope is that you can sell it in the future at, at just less of a loss. No profit there, like not going to happen. So if you're a big player, it's not fun, but you're going to be able to handle that. But let's say you do about a billion in origination volume per year, even let's say four loans, that's going to be about a million dollars out of your cash position. And if the covenants require that you have about two and a half million in net worth and cash requirements also, you know, have a specific number, you need to stay in compliance with those covenants and just, you don't have the scale. You don't have enough business coming in. You can't really do that. Right. So that's bad. That's really bad. And and I think that's really one of the main uh, reasons these analysts believe that we're going to see just a wave of generally speaking, smaller players um, that are just not going to be able to make it work, especially if they have any difficulty with underwriting and they're just not going to be able to weather, say, more than four loans, right, that come through. So that's that's kind of where we are on that part. So, you know, we've been reporting on those, um, the repurchases that Fannie and Freddie are requiring now and and how maybe, I mean, from the Fannie and Freddie perspective, they're like, oh, we haven't changed anything. From the lender perspective, it's like they're being way pickier than maybe they have been in the past, but especially in this environment, it does have this really uh, weighted effect that it didn't have before, right? It, it, and just from market conditions. So did did the story go into how much of that might be a, a factor here? Yeah. And one of the theories here is that maybe the reason Fannie and Freddie are pursuing uh, these repurchases with such uh, gusto is they don't think these lenders are going to be around, right? So you want to get it now um, before it's an insolvent company and, and there's nothing to recover. And everyone knows that the GSEs need more uh, capitalization if they're going to, to you know, ever get back to the level that that I think pretty much everyone is targeted. So, so that's part of it, you know, in, in terms of the timeline, I think that's really where things get difficult. They're not through, you know, the full period in which there was that mortgage boom in which loans would be, I think, more scrutinized and and lenders generally didn't have as much capacity to handle. And, you know, not, not that I think anyone will suggest that there's just a huge amount of bad loans, you know, that are, that are out there and, and that there's tremendous risk involved, but there are going to be a couple defects here and there. And, and when you're doing a million loans, you know, a week, a couple of them are going to have a problem with income or a couple of them are going to have a problem with, you know, some other component on, on the docs. So, 
yeah, I mean, we're not through with that yet. The question is how long and are they going to remain as aggressive as they have been? Uh, and again, you know, this is not an issue that I think is going to hurt the biggest of the IMBs. Um, but definitely if you're a mid-sized or a smaller company and you don't have a great cash position and really look around like how many do, we, we could look toward the Rockets and the UWMs and the Lone Depots and, you know, the, the big names that we always talk about. Uh, and I think they would have the money to, to handle anything like that. But unfortunately, because these are generally private companies in the mid and small space, we don't have a lot of insight into how much money they have on hand about other uh, sources of capital they'd be able to tap if something goes wrong. And so um, it's it's one of the exciting parts and, and one of the reasons that we rely so much on on just talking to people consistently and finding out what's going on because it's not going to show up in a public document. Yeah, I, I think the timeline of this cycle, so we all know we're in a cyclical business, but the timeline of how, first of all, how fast we got into trouble with the um, rates going up you know, at that velocity in 2022. I think that surprised many people. We, everybody knew it was coming. What no one could anticipate was how how steep that was. And then now I think we're still grappling with like, okay, where's the end? Where's Where does the cycle turn? And I, I think that, um, you know, Bill looked at that too. He asked some people about that. Yeah. And so we've, we've always talked about the, just the suddenness, like how sharp the, the change had been and and it was uh, historic. We, we had never seen this. I hope we will never see something like this again in our lifetime. Um, and so, you know, that shock is no longer novel. But what is really interesting to me in all this is how long this condition has remained. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people believe that the mortgage market has been down longer than was expected. You remember all the charts and the forecasts, even you know, mid last year, around this time last year, how many of them were like, oh yeah, we're going to have rates again in like the high fours, maybe low fives. Volumes are never going to be like 2020 and 2021 again, but it's going to normalize. It's going to look like a relatively healthy market. And as we sit here on July 20th, that's not what we're looking at. We're, we're probably eyeing about one five trillion in origination volume this year. And we still have the capacity issues where, I mean, the industry would need to right size by probably 50 to 75% for that to actually level off. Um, and, and that's not going to happen, right? So I think what's interesting here is we're looking at rates to drop. We're looking at volume to climb. The question is when, right? And nobody really has a crystal ball, but if you're just barely making money now in the second quarter when a lot of margins did recover for at least the publicly traded companies that we are able to track. Maybe that persists in the third quarter. Maybe there's a little bit more volume. Maybe some of them do fairly well. But then we're getting back into the winter period. There are questions as to whether seasonality matters anymore or if it's just entirely dependent on mortgage rates. But let's assume that seasonality still does make a difference. They're probably not going to be seeing a lot of companies that make money in the fourth quarter, probably not much in the first quarter of 2024 either, right? So Bill Conroy spoke to Brian Hale. You know, he's been in mortgage forever. He runs Mortgage Advisory Partners. He said he thinks maybe mid-2024, even 2025 is when we'll start to see that kind of renewed boom in housing and mortgage that we've been really desperately hoping for. 
And so if you're a lender and you survive, you're going to face a much skinnier industry. And as a result, there's going to be a lot more opportunity for you. There's just fewer players who can compete for those loans. And, and um, you know, Bill also spoke to Brett Ludden at Sterling Point, and he said the next 12 months is really going to be the test of who survives and who disappears from the market. And if you're breaking even right now, you're not making money in the fourth quarter of 2023, and you're likely not making money in the first quarter next year. So the next time you'll likely make money is going to be March of 2024. And so that's a long way to go. And if you get to August or September of next year, you're not in super shape, I'd say you're in real trouble. So there, there are differences in some of these timelines. And again, so much of this depends on, you know, the health of the overall economy, the market. Um, but at, at this point, I think it makes a lot of sense that if you are able to survive, you're going to do pretty well when the boom, maybe it will be a mini boom, <laughs> you know, maybe a more muted boom than I think many would hope. But so much less competition to face. So the question is if, if you're at a company that survives or not, right? Absolutely. Um, I recommend all our listeners go read that. It's it's a really good, well-reported story. Um, I think that's great. I wanted to, you know, you talked about um, how the overall economy, you know, what that looks like. And we had another story this week about uh, the Fannie Mae server, survey of lenders and how they're feeling about their own business and the economy in general. Walk us through that one. Yeah, so the uh, the Fannie Mae uh, economics group they they put out quite a few surveys and they've been looking to gauge really okay how are our lending executives feeling about the economy right now how are they feeling about their own businesses and uh, there were, there were a couple of really interesting points here one I thought no surprise here the top priority from a business standpoint for about a third of the executives who uh, responded to the survey is cost cutting. And that should come as no surprise. We, we already talked a little bit about sort of the, the difference in uh, capacity versus just the volume of business coming in. Um, and then the second part of it was really streamlining those businesses, right? So 32% ranked uh, business process streamlining as, as, you know, a top priority for their businesses. So they need to reduce costs through minimizing manual tasks, improving accuracy, um, you know, maybe consolidating some of your vendor relationships uh, or looking for more affordable options if you do have some expensive vendors out there. Uh, and, and then they're also looking, which I think is encouraging, at consumer-facing technology and talent management and leadership because these are durable, right? If you have good consumer-facing technology and you're able to maintain a relatively speaking healthy amount of volume, that is something that you'll be able to continue for the foreseeable future. If you have a really poor model and it's bad customer experience and you can't really ever get over the hump, I think you know your days are probably numbered. You just you need a good consumer-facing technology focus at this point if you're going to survive this kind of business. Um, and then the talent management and leadership position, I mean, that's always the calculation, right? I mean, your, your organization is strong as the people that you hire. And, and, you know, that's not just recruiting well, but that's making sure that the people who are there are satisfied and doing good work and have challenges and, and have a healthy mindset mentality. So, so these are all good solid uh, components here, but let's talk a little bit more about the economy. So, 
when I read uh, Bloomberg, the Wall Street Journal, I think, wow, the, the economy is doing pretty well. It's it's maybe surprising how well the economy has done. And so many people had projected a recession at this point, if not sooner. Some still do. No one is, uh, I think, concretely saying that we're out of the woods on that front. Um, but what you see in the jobs report, what you see in the inflation, the CPI report, that doesn't quite match the sentiment from the mortgage lending executives that were surveyed by Fannie, by Fannie Mae. And um, just, just to take a quick look at that one. So the surveyed lending executives had a really pessimistic outlook toward the economy. So about 73% of the respondents believe that the U.S. economy is on the wrong track. And about 93% of the lenders believe the economy is very likely or somewhat likely to enter a recession in the next two years. And among them, 68% of the lenders, the lending executives, I should say, expect the recession to start in Q3 or Q4 of this year. Um, and, and I thought that was really interesting because I, you know, I, I keep hearing about this, the soft landing, about this idea that maybe the housing market has already reached the bottom and maybe the Fed is done with, uh, you know, its rate hikes with the exception of maybe one more, right? And that should, even if they don't lower the rates until even summer of 2024, just having that pause, providing stability, especially to the, the capital markets, the secondary market, that would make a huge difference. One of the biggest complaints that I hear from uh, executives and, and loan officers as well is just the secondary market is such a difficult place right now and the spreads are crazy. And how do you price something that changes the volatility is so crazy right now. Um, they just want normalcy. If rates are 5.75, but it's normal and you can get a healthy spread, you can sell it quickly, you know, that would be amazing. We, we just don't have that right now. Will we in the future? Yeah, at some point. The question is when and, and how many of these companies will be able to, to withstand the pressure before, you know, we get to that stage. I think that all makes sense when you think about there's the overall economy and how people are experiencing that. And then there's people in housing, uh, mortgage and real estate that, you know, housing has been in a recession. Uh, Logan called it since last June. And the Federal Reserve has been fine with that. In fact, the Federal Reserve is like, we need a housing reset because they saw it as one of the sectors that was just out of control with inflation. So they were happy to, you know, put the pain on housing. So it's it's no surprise that the housing executives can feel like, you know, even if other things are are going well or wage growth or, you know, whatever, it's like you are not feeling that in housing yet. And and I'm not sure when you will, to your point, it, it, the volatility is a big thing. If we can, even if we got into the low sixes and stayed there and, and got to sort of a new normal and to your point, people could feel like, you know, they can understand what their cost um, to list their house is you know, there are just so many factors, but I agree with you that, you know, it's not surprising at all that people in mortgage and real estate are feeling the pain way more than maybe the the general overall economy's feeling. Yeah. And look, it's always going to be the tip of the spear with housing because it's so heavily tied to mortgage rates and the cost of financing, right? I mean, that's that's been true of every every prior housing market. It probably will for a lot of others. What I think maybe the Fed didn't expect or or hasn't fully appreciated is one how much of a lag some of the instruments they use to gauge, you know, housing inflation are. I mean, we talk about the rental component, it's like 40% of the CPI. And 
it's just, it's like a year behind, like literally a year behind. It doesn't reflect new leases. I think it's a really poor metric. I know there are a lot of economists out there and observers who think it's silly that the Fed is like using, you know, like an abacus when everybody else is on the TI-90 or whatever the, the kids have these days for calculators. <laughs> but when I was a kid, like the TI, was it 89 maybe? I don't remember. But anyway, like that was the gold standard. So so that that's part of it. But the other is like, what reset? Like, when I look around, if I'm looking to buy a house near, um, you know, my, my wife's sister lives in Princeton, New Jersey, and they bought there in 2020 and they got a rate for like 2.7. They got a million dollar house. Beautiful, like incredible. If you tried to buy a house there now, the prices only went up since then. Even since they started hiking the rates, house prices are not coming down. There are a couple select markets where price growth got totally crazy and couldn't ever support itself. If you look at Altos and you look at where you're seeing the biggest uh, you know, number of, of cuts, it's those crazy boom markets that got well overheated um, and could never sustain just based on you know, the, the demographics, the profile of people going there, whatever. So you're seeing like 50% price cuts in like Austin, Texas, and a lot of the markets in Florida but you're not seeing that really anywhere else. Like these markets are not going to see declines in pricing, at least in terms of pure house prices. There's no reset. It, it didn't happen. We just now have fewer sales. We have less mobility. We have, you know, some multifamily coming, which will help a little bit with supply. We do have some new homes coming that will also help in supply, but it's a very uneven, it's a very regionalized, um, you know, set of supply. It's really in kind of the deep South mostly. And then in parts of kind of the Southwest and a little bit in, in the Midwest. But I mean, if that, if that, the, the Fed was successful in crippling housing from a volume productivity standpoint, but not in making housing more achievable or affordable for anybody. They, they screwed the pooch on that one. Well, we're about at the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you about some other reporting that you're doing, which is along this, unfortunately, along the same um, thread of like um, some federal regulations that could put more pain on the housing market. Tell us what, what uh, listeners and readers should look forward to there. Yeah. So my, my autocorrect keeps misspelling it. It should be Basel three. But being from New Jersey, I think my phone, you know, maybe AI is getting too good and it keeps spelling it as bagel three. So maybe, maybe <laughs> trying to tell me something. I need to eat more bagels or something. But anyway, uh, so big story from Bloomberg earlier this week. Uh, they reported that the, uh, the Fed, the, uh, you know, a couple other regulators for the big banks are looking at really changing quite a bit of the risk based weight framework for mortgage as it relates to these large depository lenders. And, um, you know, it's no secret that the mortgage industry is really turned toward the independent mortgage business model because they don't have so many stringent regulatory issues to overcome. And, you know, especially when you look at affordable housing, who's in the Gini space, you know, who's doing FHA loans, who's doing that kind of, uh, product. It's not JP Morgan Chase. It's not Wells Fargo. It's not US Bank. You know, that that's coming from the IMBs. And, you know, I, I think were it not for a lot of these regulations that came in the wake of Dodd-Frank, 
you would see a lot more credit availability coming from the banks, but they're really not there. And and they, I think personally, I think they're probably right. It's not a very level playing field. You know, you have these big independent mortgage banks. That's all they do. They get the loans off their books real quick, whereas the banks hold them. And so if they're going to have to cover even more capital, um, you know, and holding it's, it's not, it's not going to cause them to do more mortgage lending. They're going to retreat. If your risk weight jumps from 50%, which is basically the standard now, we're not talking about Fannie Freddie, by the way, we're talking about other mortgage products, um, so not GSEs. But if you go from 50% to say 70%, 80%, the bank is not going to do that loan. It's just not worth it. They don't make it, you know, in, in a lot of cases right now, these banks are doing these mortgages because they want to get some other business from that client in some other fashion. You know, maybe it's attached to the private wealth segment or maybe, you know, there are commercial loans that they want to work with or maybe, you know, they have another purpose. But mortgage lending is not a space that they're particularly excited about, not one that they've particularly resourced in, in recent years either. And, you know, I, I think this will have other potential impacts as well, especially on MSR sales. Um, and then, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the podcast, Sarah, but the warehouse lenders, who do you think is, you know, in the warehouse lending game? It's banks. <laughs> it's all banks. It's regional banks. It's, you know, in, in some cases, bigger banks. Um, but that's not going to, I, I don't think that's going to encourage, uh, you know, more more stability and, and uh, credit availability in, in mortgage Overall, right? Because all the independent mortgage banks, that is their fuel. That is how they do their jobs. That's how they make the loans. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to see, we'll have a story coming out later today. And uh, we've been talking to the experts. The MBA is not happy about it. You know, a whole series of others are, are unhappy, especially the banks. They're pretty unhappy about it, especially the regional banks. Uh, anybody who's doing jumbo uh, is, is not going to be thrilled about this. So yeah, it's going to have widespread implications if it does come to pass. We don't know that it will. Like I said, this is just reporting uh, and, and we'll have a lot more visibility um, this time next week, Sarah, Thursday, July 27th is supposedly when this, uh, this series of regulations will drop. You know, we hope that there is a whole series of uh, frantic lobbying that's going on from different sectors to, to put a halt to that particular part, because it's like, I don't know, do you just want to kill the whole segment off? I mean, um, you know, taking this on right now, doing this right now seems just wholly irresponsible from my perspective. So we'll see. Thanks for uh, having your newsroom be so focused on the things that our audience cares about so much. And James, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insights.